0: Pitch. A swing a Deep left. Way back. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. So good to be back. It's been a while. We were putting out the prospect handbook. It's holiday season. A little bit of a delay in podcast recordings, but we're glad to be back. And we're back with a big one, the Tampa Bay Rays system our number one farm system in baseball as of our last organization talent ranking in August post trade deadline to break down the race system. We're happy to bring in JJ Cooper, our peerless leader and executive editor, JJ, this is your second year doing the race system for us here at baseball America. What would you say are the biggest changes the uh, race system from a year ago to today?
1: Um, at the top. I mean, the, I think one thing that is, that is very clear that has uh, is Wander Franco at this time last year was a sensational prospect, but one who had no time in full season ball. And, you know, when we talk now, we're talking about uh, Wander Franco, who's a sensational prospect and one who who basically blitzed through low A and was one of the most productive players in high class A in his time there, even though he was way younger than pretty much everyone he was facing. So I would say that the number one prospect in the system is an even better prospect now than he was. He just keeps keeps basically proving what we thought, you know, which is important. And the other thing I would say, though, is is that if you if you look at the totality of moves that the the Rays have done over the past year, one of the things that was kind of unavoidable for them. This is a really deep farm farm system, and I would say it's not as deep right now as it was a year ago, simply because. For one, there have been some graduations, but on top of that, they had to make move after move after move where they knew they were facing a 40-man roster crunch at the end of this 2019 season. And so they made a number of moves where they traded away, or DFA'd in some cases, players who, who really could have useful MLB futures, but... They just didn't fit for a team that really is going to, you know, that's really tied up against the 40-man roster. I, I think if you look back on it, there's a pretty good chance that the uh, Nick Solak for Peter Fairbreak's trade, pretty good chance that the the Rangers quote win that one. But it was a, a trade where, the reality of it is, is that that Solak was basically blocked, in, you know, in Tampa Bay because he plays basically the same positions as Brandon Lau. Defensively, he doesn't play them as well. And so you have situations like that.
0: Anytime a team has talented players and they don't have a spot for them, that means they have a really, really, really good group of players for them, both in the major leagues and throughout their farm system. And that's a luxury the Rays certainly have. You look at the big picture, and the Rays posted their second straight 90-win season, winning 96 games last year. They returned to the playoffs for the first time since 2013, took the Astros to five games in the American League Division Series. While doing all this, they ascended to the number one farm system in baseball, they have the number one prospect in the game in Wander Franco, and they were our organization of the year here at Baseball America. So, while in the field everything seems rosy, there's a tremendous talent base in the majors right now. There's a tremendous talent base coming up the minors, presumably landing and mass within the next year or two. But off the field, things are less rosy. We saw the Rays once again finish among the worst teams in attendance in baseball. They were 29th this year, averaging less than 15,000 fans a game, despite the fact that it's tied for the second-best record in franchise history. We saw, the rumors come out in the summer about a potential proposal that would have them split the season in Montreal. It seems like the Rays are kind of a weird dichotomy, JJ, because on the one hand, on the field, there's so much to be excited about. And off the field, it's just kind of depressing, and we see this team consistently put a good product on the field, and they just cannot draw. They don't have any success in that market. It almost feels a little bit hopeless off the field, which is in direct contrast to all the hope and optimism on the field.
1: You can make... Okay, so let me roll out all the the answers, the apologies that you can make. One, the ballpark's not in a good place, which although... The argument I would make with that is, is that I, I think that downtown St. Pete, the area around it is way better than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Um, I think there is stuff to do around the ballpark, things like that. The absolute truth, which is not going to be solved no matter where you put a ballpark in that area is, is if you put it in St. Pete, it is brutal to get there from Tampa <laughs> that you are driving on a, <laughs> on a, on a bridge for a long time and you're stuck in traffic, absolutely true. And if you put it in Tampa, then everyone from St. Pete, and especially if you're coming from you know further south, Bradens and all that, you're gonna be on bridges for a long time to get there. I, I mean, Again, yes, if you put a stadium in Tampa, would it have a larger mass of, of, of fans who could get there quickly? Absolutely. But I do think that there are legitimate Issues with the uh, with the market, kind of wherever you put that team, you know they they closed up the they closed off the upper deck this year, for except for they opened them back up for playoffs I believe, but basically for most of the season, the Rays played in a 25,000 seat stadium.
0: Like that's- and didn't fill it. They averaged uh, no. four, just, just under 15,000 fans a game this year. Worst in the American League. Second worst in baseball. They were sandwiched between the Marlins and the Orioles. Marlins were 30th. Orioles were 28th. Two teams who were actively tanking, not trying to win, essentially told their fans, we're not putting a winning product on the field. And that forced them away. Forced them away. The Rays well- were, again, one of the best teams in the American League. And they're in that tier of teams. It's problematic.
1: The reality also is is that every effort they have made to build a new stadium has fallen through. And look, I don't want to sound this like I'm just saying this from the the raised ownership perspective. You know, you can build a state, part of this always comes down to, it's a lot easier to build a stadium depending on how much money the the ownership's willing to contribute themselves. And so far, there has not been a a stadium deal that's worked out. And whether that is, you know, in St. Pete or Tampa, I do think that there are fair questions to be asked if if the St. Pete-Tampa area is a viable MLB market in the long term. Because as you just laid out, you know, I, there is no oh, okay. Well, if this if this Rays team just wins the World Series, then all of a sudden the fans are going to come in droves. That's that's not. I, I don't think that that's a realistic uh, prediction here. Because if you look at it, I mean, they have never come in droves before. And yes, this team has ups and downs, but I would say over the course of the last 15 years, there are a whole lot of fan bases who would happily trade to uh, be in the situation that the Rays have been
0: in. You wrote about this, uh, I believe it was two years ago, about how the Rays, just the amount of money they spend, even for all the homegrown talent, all their creativity, it's not conducive to really, frankly, putting a championship-level team on the field. A good team, yes. A championship-level team, probably not. And then looking at it after the Nationals won the World Series, I went back and looked at this, and we talked about it on the podcast, 24 of the last 25 World Series champions, and it actually goes back even further than that. But just in the wild card era, 24 of the 25 World Series champions all finished in the top half of Major League Baseball in opening day payroll. We've talked about this. In order to get the um, both the star power and depth needed to survive a 162 game season and emerge as champions in the postseason. That costs a certain amount of money. You have to be somewhere within the competitive range of your peers. And we've seen that top half of opening day payroll is really where you have to be with only one exception, the 2003 Marlins. Is it possible for all the talent the Rays have, all their creativity, all their versatility, if they can't even afford to keep players like Tommy Pham, their best right-handed power threat by far and their team leader in a lot of ways, is, a division, is 96 wins in a division series the best they can do? Because for all the success they've had, we've talked about this, they made the World Series in 2008, they've made the postseason four times since then, each time they've tapped out in the division series. Is that the cap of this Rays team for all the talent and creativity they have, simply because, look, you've got to spend a certain amount of money and they can't do it?
1: I don't think it's the cap, because um, you know the playoffs are kind of a crazy thing, and it just matters that you you, know, you hit the right combination that one year, but I do think it is absolutely a limiting factor. Like the the team that I would say is probably the the, the closest analog to the Rays is when you look back to the Royals club that uh, that went to back to back World Series in the middle of the decade. But
0: well, those Royals teams finished tw- they were twelfth in pitching. I'm
1: getting there. That's exactly what I'm getting to. That's my that's entirely my point. My point is. The, Ray, the Royals are not a large market team by any, any stretch of the imagination. However, as that team matured that they kind of brought up all together, they pushed payroll up from kind of a raise range to, they, they pushed it up to basically around double what the Rays generally have been paying for payroll. And what, I'm, what we kind of have to see here is, is okay, that no one should ever expect, and I don't think that the Rays have to get to spending 200 million on payroll in a year to win a World Series. I don't think that that's in any way something they're going to have to do. At the same time, does it mean that they may have to get to 115 million? <laughs> you know, yeah, I think it may. Because- I'd say
0: 130, 140. I mean, that's in a lot of ways now, that's where that number 15, 16 team is. And I think that for me is the biggest but question. I, I do
1: think. But I think they could do, I think that they could win a World Series with how this team's coming up with if they would be willing to go to 115, 120. I don't think they have to even get to that midpoint because they do have a lot of young and inexpensive players. But but at the end of the day, you know, you, you can't, the, the real question becomes, okay, again, this is not a star-laden team. However, it, it does involve, as this group, starts to uh to kind of hit their uh their arbitration years it it does mean that you have to be willing you can't just trade everyone away at year four or five in the
0: big leagues in two three years theoretically when Wander franco is you know getting into year potentially year two of his big league career starting to find his Mm -hmm. way Austin Meadows will be year three, four, potentially five in these next two, three, four years. Are they going to be able to keep Austin Meadows while Willie Adamas, or excuse me, while Wander Franco is becoming Wander Franco? That's the kicker to me. You need both of those guys if you're going to win. If you have to trade Austin Meadows as soon as he hits year four and, well, oh, well, we've got Wander Franco coming up. No, you're best off. Your best chances of winning are having both those guys in the lineup.
1: Is Tyler Glasnow going to still be there? You know, when have to keep –
0: you can make all the great trades you want. If you don't keep the player, it doesn't matter. And that's where – that, to me, is the challenge the Rays are going to face. I do want to get into this farm system a bit. Wander Franco, we've talked about, he ascended to the number one prospect in baseball following the graduations of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Fernando Tatis Jr., and Eloy Jimenez this year. You mentioned earlier how Wander just blitzed through low A – got to high A, held his own as an 18-year-old. It was an impressive season all around. From a skills perspective, not necessarily an accomplishment perspective, just, hey, he got to another level. From a skills perspective, how has he grown from last year to this year based on your conversations with evaluators, both inside and outside the race system?
1: He continues to offer confirmation for the incredibly advanced skills that he was already showing last year. And what I mean by that is is that As a hitter, when he was in the Appy League, and even before that, especially when he was in the Appy League, Wander Franco showed that he had exceptional bat-to-ball skills, which kind of allowed him to do things that very few players can do. He does not regularly swing and miss, which, okay, you know, we're, we're we're in an era right now where a whole lot of really good hitters swing and miss a lot. But... And we're in an era also where most of the hitters who don't swing and miss don't hit the ball for impact. Nick Madrigal does not swing and miss. But also Nick Madrigal is not one who we really expect major league ball to be, uh, you know, a middle of the order hitter. He doesn't impact the baseball that way. He, he doesn't strike out. He hits for high average. Wander Franco has a chance to do both because he does not swing and miss, which allows him to do things in counts that that few hitters can do because you know if he sees a pitch to, to jump on he can he can be aggressive with it and he usually hit hard but let's say that in this at bat you know he'll take he will take pitches early on let's say he sees it's 0-0 and he sees a strike that there's really not much that he can do with he doesn't mind to get to 0-2 because he has the ability to battle back from 0-2 like few hitters do so We saw confirmation of those skills. If if there was anything that we saw, I I think, from a uh, defensive side, what we're seeing so far is is he's yet to prove he can't play shortstop. I don't think that he's going to play shortstop necessarily on a team that has Willie Adamas. I think Willie Adamas has a chance to be, when he arrives, to be a better shortstop. But he has shown so far that you don't rule out him being a shortstop in addition to being one of the better hitters in baseball. And, and that's that's something that obviously gives him kind of a, a chance to be pretty special. What
0: for you is the next step for him that he needs to take this year developmentally? What's the biggest thing? Because as, as impressive as he is and as universally uh, re- highly regarded as he is, there's always things for a young ball player to work on. What are the biggest things he needs to do in 2020 to grow as a player?
1: Uh, answer questions defensively. Um, not that he wasn't – he was a a fine shortstop in class But to be honest, I really don't know where he's going to play when he arrives because I do think that his bat is kind of going to be what's ready. And then it's going to be the, the follow-up question of that will be, okay, so where are you going to play him? Again, not that he's like way behind defensively either. This is not a situation where you're talking about a player who's – hopeless defensively and a great hitter. We're talking about a player who as a hitter is probably, you know, three, four years ahead of his chronological age. And we're talking about a player as a defend as defensively. Who's, you know, right on two schedule or two ahead. Yeah. I mean, and so again, I don't see a situation where unless there's an injury that they're going to get to August, September and say, okay, Willie Adams, we're moving you aside because Wander Franco's ready. But I absolutely could see a situation where you get to August, September of this year, and they say, and, and kind of in the lead up, in weeks in the lead up to that, they look around and say, you know, where's the position we could play Wander Franco to get him accustomed to because we think he could play left field or right field or third base or second base. Well, whatever third base
0: seems the natural one just when you look at kind of the Rays, how they're okay. constructed, who they've had recent years. Brandon Lau going second base to left field, but third base, they didn't. I mean, we saw Mike Brasso come up. Yanni Diaz got some time Yandy there. Um, Matt Duffy kind of came back from the dead for a little bit and had some time there. That was sort of the rotating door, and it feels like, look, when you look at the Rays and map them out long term, you know, you have Brandon Lau at second, although he can also bounce out to left. You have Willie Dobbins at short. It seems like third base is the most natural place for Franco to slide in once he's ready. It, it, I think there is some logic to that. But,
1: you know, again, I do think that that's something that this year could kind of be dependent. Again, in the short term more than the long term could be dependent. Let's say that Yandy Diaz ends up, you know, they feel comfortable with him at third base or maybe they feel comfortable, you know, wherever that is maybe, you know, I do think that Franco has a lot of uh, useful versatility there that, you know, he could play a corner outfield spot as well. Again, the bat is going to be such that it's really going to be a question of, okay, well, where does he fit? Do you really at some point are going to want to get that bat in the lineup? And again, I think from that standpoint, 2021 is kind of the,
0: uh, the conservative timetable. JJ, wonder Franco, you mentioned 2020 is possibility he comes up. We saw Brendan McKay make his debut this past year in Tampa Bay. He came up uh, just uh, the two-year mark after he was drafted, primarily as a pitcher. He did get some at-bats. I saw McKay come up when he came to pitch in Los Angeles. and Again, you never want to judge a guy what he is based solely on his rookie campaign. Up the minors, there was a lot of reviews of, you know, he might be a mid-rotation starter, maybe number two. What he showed in the majors, and not just results-based, but just kind of the look, the stuff, how he was working through things – it looked more back of the rotation. That's not a bad thing. Everyone needs back of the rotation starters. They're, they're very, very valuable to have, and no one should poo-poo that. But it did feel like when you watched him, this again, in the majors against major league competition, this was more of a, a mid-to-back guy than a mid-to-front guy. Um, having gone through this year with him, double-A, AA, triple-A, the majors, how have the evaluations of him changed at all, and, and what's his current status as a prospect?
1: I, I do think he's more likely a three slash four. Um, really, really, the question kind of becomes: There's no doubt about his control. He has solid stuff. Really, it comes down to: Does he have? When he got in trouble at the big league level, it, it was long at bats a lot of times, which is comes back to the question of: right. does he really Not have having to the put away pitch
0: that was noticeable. Right.
1: You know, and again, I, I think that that's now so the thing that I'll say for Brendan McKay that you kind of factor into this is that's the first time he's ever faced that with his, you know, with his pitching. And so I do think that there's the makeup there, that there's the, uh, the, the ability to adapt, to kind of improve, you know, and, and kind of figure out ways to do that. Um, I I do again, but I do think it's more of a three slash four, which again, works perfectly fine for them because I, I don't think his stuff is, is such that, you know, if you map it out, like in an ideal situation, he's going to be their number four starter next year. Like in an ideal situation, you've got Snell, you have Glassnow, you have Morton, and then maybe he slots in behind them. But the other thing with him is, is that I do think that in this next year, in this full you know, 2020 season, it's also something where they'll probably have a relatively quick hook with them where, you know, if they get five innings of them, they're not going to ask him to get through that lineup a third time. And maybe he eventually adjusts and adapts to be able to do that two times through the order, start to get the third time through the order, okay, let's turn it over to pen, And if he can do that consistently, they'll be quite happy with that. result.
0: And talking to Kevin Cash at the winter meetings, he mentioned too, you know, they don't have to really push him and rush him and say, you are a number four starter. We're going to sink and swim here. They have options. Ryan Yarbrough and Yanni Chirinos did some mm-hmm. good things last year. So if they decide, Hey, Brendan, we want you to go back to triple A work on really turning whichever pitch it is into a true out pitch they could afford to do that they have the pitching depth so even though mckay's major league time was not you know he didn't blow anyone's doors off you see the talent there and now it's just about growing and i'll be curious to see exactly what role he settles into and we've also talked about his two-way history it seems like with each passing year it seems like you know it really is just going to be a situation where he's you know, hitting might be something he does occasionally. He got some pinch hit opportunities last year. He did DH. There was also an opportunity for him to, uh, to hit when they played interleague games and in National League parks. But it does feel like, at the end of the day, Brendan McKay's career will pretty much be as a pitcher with some sporadic at-bats as opposed to a true two-way player. At least that's how it seems like it's trending.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the reality of it is is that if he's a hitter, he's not in the big leagues right now. He doesn't, ha- he has not demonstrated that he is a big league hitter. And, you know, that doesn't mean that he couldn't with another 1,000 at-bats in the minors get there, but he's not going to need 1,000 at-bats in the minors to be a pitcher. So, yeah, it's it's kind of more of, yeah, it's useful to have a a bat who, okay, it's the fifth inning and it's a, you're playing a national league team in a National League Park, and you need a pinch hitter and maybe he hits a homer or maybe he draws a walk, but I don't think it's going to be a significant part of this role.
0: Matthew Libertor is another highly touted left-hander, but I actually want to get into the top-ranked right-hander in this system, and that's Shane Boz. He came over in the Chris Archer trade with Tyler Glasso and Austin Meadows. Even if Shane Boz never pitches a day in the major leagues, the Rays are going to consider this trade a huge win and likely one of the robberies of the decade. That said, Boz came out this year and did some really, really good things at low Class A Bowling Green. Uh, went to the Arizona Fall League, showed some premium stuff. What are the reports on Shane Balls you got this year for really his first year of full season ball? He was a 2017 draft pick, but again, this was really the year he really spent his first time going through you know, a full season and then also into the Fall League.
1: We, we knew he was going to show premium stuff. That, that's not a surprise. I do think that his strike throwing his control was better this year than than probably maybe been expected. I mean, that's been that will be I mean when we're talking about Shane boss all the way through the minors. One of the things we're going to the two things that are always going to be part of that conversation are so what's his control look like and can he sustain what he does you know as a starter or is he going to end up being a you know a reliever long term and. The, the positive, I would say, for him is, is I feel like coming out of the 2019 season, I feel more bullish on yes answers to both of those, that he can be a starter and that he can throw strikes. I feel our, our, he significantly took strides on both of those. He's still going to need to make bigger strides. He's going to have to continue to improve. But I do also think that the Rays have kind of tweaked you know what he throws, um, more four-seamers. You know, I, I think that that's helped him get to his control a little bit more. Again, he still is a good ways away. He still has to prove that his uh, control continues to improve. But I feel better about that than I did when we were coming into the season.
0: Yeah, His walk rate has dropped. Uh, 2017, his, uh, his debut was 5.3 per nine. 2018, it was 5.0 per nine. This year it was 4.1 per nine. So you're seeing the walk rate continue to move in the right direction. I know when I saw him in the fall league, my first thought was, hey, this is a great arm. I do think reliever, but I thought elite closer. So it's one of those things where, yes, it's relief, mm-hmm. but it's such a good potential reliever that it's not, it's not in any way, shape, or form lost value. You see those elite-level closers. Those guys are hugely, hugely valuable, and frankly, teams need them to win. So I, I felt like just watching Shane Boz and some of the scout calls I made on him this year, although you obviously made more than I did, was, hey, I, I do think this guy is probably a reliever in the end but it's a potential fire-breathing closer that's, you know, among the best in the game. And that's a great prospect to have. A lot of teams would want their systems.
1: Right. And again, like, you know, there's the, the, there's the range of, of possibilities. And the thing that stands out with all these guys is, it's like, you know, when I look back 10 years, we were talking about Jake McGee. And we would have had some of the similar conversations about Jake McGee, about whether he was going to be a starter or a reliever. And you know we we could have many of those same conversations, and and the reality is he ended up being a reliever, and he ended up being a good one. He ended up being a fire breathing closer. You know, there's obviously possibilities where Shane Boz ends up just being kind of a useful reliever, or you know, and, and that would still be pretty good. Um, I, you know, I do think at the end of the day he has shown that the move is far is still a couple years away where if he'd have had a, a 2019 like he had 2017, 2018, the move might be really soon. And that's, he's kind of pushed that question back a little bit.
0: Yeah. The walk rate going in the right direction is certainly promising. The Rays have a number of really interesting pitching prospects. It's one of the reasons their farm system is as highly ranked as it is. We mentioned McKay, Liberator, Boz, you know, Brent Honeywell was at one point a top 25 prospect in the game. He keeps having setbacks with his, with his elbow and, you know, we need to see what he looks like when he comes back, when he gets back on a the mound. Then on the other side, you have Shane McClanahan, who kind of like Shane Boz, big mm-hmm. f- fire breathing type of stuff, control questions. But he got up to double A this year. He showed some starter trades. I actually felt like some of the calls I made, it seemed more optimistic that McClanahan stays a starter than Boz. When you look at the Rays pitching in totality, McKay, were Boz, Honeywell, McClanahan, and oh, by the way, uh, our breakout spec, our big breakout prospect of the year, Joe Ryan. How do you assess these arms and, and the strengths, how they complement each other? And then especially given the Rays have a really good rotation in the majors right now, are some of these guys trade pieces in the future? How do you kind of suss out the Rays pitching, you know, big picture, all-encompassing?
1: Well, one of the things you just asked there is, is okay, so are these Rays going to be a team that holds on to its stars, or is it or is it going to be the one that keeps trading their stars and they're going to rely on some of these guys to step in and replace uh, Tyler Glasnow or you know, or guys like that, Charlie Morton, in upcoming years? And kind of for the sake of the Rays, you hope that, that these guys are the trade pieces and not just that they have to continually trade away their successful big leagues. Right. You
0: don't want to trade probably. away Blake Snell and Tyler Glasnow. You'd rather trade these guys. But if you have to do the other way, it kind of is what it is.
1: Right. But the reality of it is, is that they have options that many teams don't have because, you know, we could get into their second tier. I, again, we haven't talked about JJ Goss who didn't make their top 10, but JJ Goss is one of the best uh, high school arms in the 2019 draft class. And if we were, there are many, you know, well, I should say many, but there are a number of systems where if JJ Goss had been picked where he was picked, we'd be talking about him as the number one, number two or number three prospect in the system. But because he is with the Rays, he's a guy in the teams because they have pitchers who have done more, who have similar stuff and have done it at, you know, at higher levels. But the difference that they have is, is that they have a large number of these guys. And the other thing that you have to say for the Rays also is, is they have demonstrated year in year out that they do a really good job of developing pitching. Guys get better with them, not worse, which is also a, uh, you know, a key thing that makes you feel good about their chances of developing something.
0: There's no question. When it comes to developing pitching, I've always, I've long thought the Rays are among the best in baseball in terms of getting them through the system when they get to the majors, putting them in positions to have success. And even if success doesn't come right away, such as what happened with Blake Snell, they're able to make the corrections. There's been a lot of positive we've talked about the race system because they have done a really good job player development-wise. When you look at their top 10, they're into their top 20 and 30, which you'll be able to see in the prospect handbook. It's guys who mostly took steps forward. There is one guy in the top 10 who took a step backward this year, and that was Ronaldo Hernandez. What were you hearing from evaluators about some of the reasons for his step back and what ultimately kept him in the top 10 for you despite what was frankly not a great year?
1: I don't, you know, catching's hard, Catching's really hard. And he did yes. not have as good a year, you know, and although I think part of it also is, is that going to the level that he was going to, um, you know, statistically it's going to make it look worse, even if you have a similar year because of uh, the, the toughness of the hitting environments. But I think that this was the year like, okay, it was a step back year for Ronaldo Hernandez as after a really step forward year in 2018. Um, and, and now the, really the question becomes, that comes, and this is kind of what some of the fun of, uh, of work, you know, writing about prospects. We're going to know a lot more at the end of 2020 than we do right now is the question. We don't know the answer to is, is was the 2019 season a blip, a setback, or was the 2019 season much more of kind of a confirmation that, you know, the reality is, is at the end of the day, he just was not as good a good at catching prospects as we thought he was. Um, and and we don't, know the answer to that yet. I, I do think that there are still the tools there. There's still work to be done. I would say that he has to get at least a grade better defensively uh, before he's big league ready. I think at the plate, he has significant strides he needs to make as a hitter as well. But but he also has the tools, the possibility of being an everyday catcher, and, and, which is something that's it's kind of hard to find uh, right now in, in the minors. And you know the other thing that's tough with this when we talk about prospect prognostications is, is he going to be catching in a world with robo lumps where framing no longer matters? Well, I think that would actually suit a player like Ronaldo Hernandez quite well, because he's going to have more offensive potential than a lot of catching big league catchers that we talk about right now
0: there's still enormous power there. And that's something a lot of evaluators have pointed to that it's, it's anytime you have a catcher with that amount of power, you know, he can still hit for some average a little bit, even if he's not the most patient guy in the world in terms of taking walks, it doesn't strike out a ton. They're still something to build on uh, JJ's. The Rays have both star power and depth in their system. They've got uh, definitely a lot of depth at the major league level and they've had star power though. They, as we've talked about, have uh, shown a need to try and keep it. It does look rosy on the Rays for the, uh, it does look rosy for the Rays on the field of the future. As we discussed at the open of the podcast off the field, things are a little bit less, less rosy, but among the things they can control from a player personnel perspective, uh, clearly the Rays are, are in good shape and that's why they're our organization of the year. JJ, as we wrap up here, any final thoughts, the Rays, you know, the big picture of where they are just as an organization, majors and minors beyond just the top 10 prospects.
1: Yeah. The thing I would say is just to kind of cite a couple of other guys we're talking about, like, Greg Jones was their first-round pick this year, and Greg Jones is a high-ceiling college uh, draftee. And, again, he doesn't crack the top ten because this is arguably the best system in baseball. I really like Tosh Bradley, who could be a guy who really blows up in 2020, athletic right-hander, who was one of the youngest guys in the 2018 class. Kevin Padlow, when we talk about third base, we talk about Wander Franco logically play third base, Kevin Padlow is a guy who – who maybe he gets to third base this year and, and kind of solves that problem for the Rays before Franco ever gets there. And, and Nick Schnell's had some injuries, but maybe Nick Schnell, who was a uh, first-round pick of theirs in 2018, maybe 2020 is the year that he kind of emerges. The point is, is that with a lot of systems, you know, you could always construct kind of an optimistic viewpoint of, well, here's how this team could be, farm system could be better a year from now than it is now. But the difference with the Rays versus a lot of these systems is is with the Rays, you're talking about a situation where you're talking about the guys in the teens. You're talking about the Riley O'Briens. You're talking about guys in some cases who are in the 20s of the the 25th best prospect in the system and a way that he could become uh, a top, you know, 100, top 200 prospect in the game. You're not talking about the guy who's number four in the system and trying to construct a uh, reality of where he could be a top 100 prospect in the game. That's the thing the Rays have is – the other thing that with that is is that to just kind of sum up is, is one of the things that I've really been impress- you know, appreciative of over the years is the Rays, when they make trades, they often will snag a guy who's four or five years away and then you look down the road and go, that was a really astute pickup. Um, they trade Wilmer Font, uh, you know, who I don't think a lot of people even remember that they had Wilmer Font. But they, I do uh, play some they- pitch. <laughs> Yeah, you did, you know, but, uh, but they picked up a, a rookie ball arm for him that, you know, maybe we're talking, maybe, maybe we're talking about it a couple of years, um, you know, and so they have that kind of thing where they do that time and time again, this is just a really well run organization that has to be really well run because they're trying to overcome the reality is, is that this is a, uh, a team also that keeps a payroll that is, it's a non competitive payroll year after year.
0: And we will see if they're able to overcome that. JJ, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your insight and uh, we look forward to talking to you again as we delve in more into our BA Top 10 Prospect Podcast. That'll do it for another edition of the Baseball America Podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to JJ Cooper for joining us to break down the race system. For JJ, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening and have a great one, everybody.